Hi everyone, and welcome to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir, the only pod that takes you behind the scenes and gives you the inside word on the world of tech and growth from the insiders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of Luxury Escapes, journalist and angel investor. And I'm joined by my great mate, Adir Schiffman, executive chairman of Catapult Sports and serial investor. In today's episode, we deep dive into the big dating apps, Match.com and Bumble. We talk about the labour strife hitting Australia's docks and the joy of incremental growth. Episode 22. Welcome back, Adir. Thank you for making the effort. You're not super healthy at the moment, so you've, you've gotten up off a sick bed and done the right thing by the contrarian's army. I'm two out of ten sick. Two out of ten. And I'm a hypochondriac, so I'm probably one out of ten. <laughs> so it's really just a sniffle. <laughs> I've never met a doctor ever. I've never met a doctor who doesn't have some degree of hypochondria to their personality. In fact, I think if you're a bit of a hypochondriac, medicine is your calling. We, I think we saw during COVID, you had probably, what, 30% of doctors who I think were outstanding during COVID, uh, the Jay Bachayas and all that, over yourself. You had probably 70% of doctors, the worst being anaesthetists, who were paranoid, too scared to leave the house, wearing masks everywhere. They were probably in my view, the reason we reacted so wrongly to COVID was the medical establishment disgraced itself. This wasn't planned, by the way. Do you, do you know, well, I think that's, uh, not surprisingly, I'll think that's a bit harsh, but do you know, in defense of anaesthetists, do you know why that profession in particular is going to be more sensitive to this type of thing? I, my, my theory, and you can, you, you've got more expertise being a doctor than me, my theory during COVID was the job of an anaesthetist is to keep someone alive and stop bad things happening versus... Obviously, all doctors want to keep people alive, but if you've got like you're a heart, if you're a cardiothoracic surgeon, you're going to be trying pushing the boundaries, try and achieve an outcome. Whereas the only thing an ethos do is try and keep someone alive while they're asleep. That's my my view, and they, they're just so risk averse. So there's also something else that. Firstly, let me say I'm very um, pleased that you conceded that. Obviously, I know more about medicine than you do because I did spend some time learning how to be a doctor. <laughs> a little bit. So, um, no, because the other thing anaesthetists do that is not well known is that they spend a lot of time in the intensive care unit. And so they see their worst cases of things. And so it's pretty obvious that they're going to be the most influenced by the extreme cases of things because they're the most exposed to it. So that's that's the reason that they were, I think, the, the, the you, you call them the, the most scared of COVID, but I think they just saw the worst cases of COVID because of their job. Possibly. I remember there was that guy in Sydney during COVID was was the first almost to lead the charge. He was an It was just a shocking run of anaesthetists who were sort of losing the plot. But anyway, that's thankfully behind us. I think the problem with COVID is I'm not I'm not sure I'm not sure people have learned that lesson fully. I think if we had another pandemic, would we react the Sweden way, which was in hindsight clearly the correct way? If you look at excess deaths, Sweden's beaten the world. They obviously were the, by far the most open. Or do we do what we did in Australia? and many other Western countries and, and react completely wrongly. Like there used to be a pandemic playbook and I'm not sure there is one now. Would you say, have we learned any lessons? I think the answer to the question you're asking is no, but that's only because you're asking the wrong question <laughs> because we have learned a big lesson. What we've learned is that it's the politicians that get to decide outcomes and what the politicians have learned is that if you lock people down, you get re-elected. And so they've learned a lesson. I think they would react exactly the same way next time because it served them well as politicians the first time around. Maybe. I, I, I think now the majority of people, I would hope, I, I think I think it is right, now realise that lockdowns were the wrong way to go. 
it's, it feels like a bit like a market crash. Like a stock share market crash happens when every sort of 15 years or so because people just lose their memory of the last crash. So I think people who have lived through COVID now, because the last sort of pandemic we had was 58 and 68 before this. So most people forgot them. They were, the reason why we don't talk about them is because people didn't overreact like they did to COVID. They were basically the same level of uh, fatality rate um, or roughly the same. Uh, so I think people who have lived through COVID to an extent remember. Uh, but I think I, I worry that to your point on the politician thing, if it one happened in 30 years again, I, I, I actually think we would, we will react the wrong way is, is the concern that nothing was learned in the long term. You say that people – so I agree with you now that people – in fact, you know, I don't want to have a whole COVID discussion because like we are, this is like one member of the choir talking to the other. <laughs> but, um, but, but, but basically a lot of people now say to me, oh, you know, I, I see in retrospect that I should not have gone along with all of this and I should have reacted more strongly, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a guy called Thurgood Marshall. He was the first African-American – Justice of the Supreme Court in the US, a very much a remarkable human being. And he said something along the lines of um, the greatest threat to liberty comes during times of urgency when something like liberty or the rule of law seems uh, too extravagant to endure or something along those lines. And I think that is a, despite my butchery of the quote, that that is, that encapsulates so perfectly. What the core risk that we face in at times when we're under an extreme amount of pressure, it is so easy for fear to make reason seem completely extravagant and at a price that we can't pay. And I think it'll happen a second time because it, we don't stop being homo sapiens and that is a fundamental characteristic of homo sapiens. I think you're right. How has is, how is your week been going back to current affairs uh, how's my? I had a. It's a nice. It's a holiday week, so I did two thirds or three quarters of a week of work. Actually, eighty percent of a week of work and twenty percent of taking it easy. And uh, I know you're away, so you're not going to appreciate this comment. But this is a nice time of year to be in Australia, I think. And in fact, I quite like being at home for this time of year wherever possible. I will say, I was going to say I quite like being in Melbourne, but when I look at our LinkedIn page and I look at the distribution of where members are from on our LinkedIn page, I realise like Sydney is gaining rapidly on Melbourne, so we just have to always ensure that we're a national podcast. <laughs> we might be, I think we're an international podcast with listeners, at least in Israel, the UK and the US. So I can't say Melbourne. I think about 10% of our listeners, 10% are international, so it's growing. Uh, which is great. It's interesting. I was messaged you earlier in the day, but our last well, the last few days we've had basically double our usual listenership. So maybe mm. it's because we punched through the holidays and everybody else took time off, or we had a couple of pretty good episodes in there. But thanks to all the listeners, as always, and to, to for people telling their friends, which we much appreciate. Uh, but it was great to such such a great response, and we've maintained that sort of five percent, mm. just over five percent per week growth. So when you plug that into a annualized number, it's actually a pretty good number. Well, the thing that I noticed with our LinkedIn page, because I, I want to talk about metrics in a way that I think is very instructive for people scaling businesses and easy to misunderstand. And so it's kind of the the law of large numbers in a sense, uh, um, which is, well, maybe it's the, law of, it's the law of compounding growth, we could call it. So our LinkedIn page in the last 30 days has had a 30% increase in members, which is that's a substantial number. Like I, I'm happy with any business growing at that speed. Yeah. And that is consistent 
with a five or six percent weekly growth rate. That's how it compounds through. I think it's six and a half percent a week, yeah. which is exactly what you've been saying all along. So any skepticism I might have had about your claims of five or six percent weekly growth, because I don't, I can't even see the metrics. Turns out, if we use the LinkedIn page as a proxy, you were probably telling the truth. So I would have embellished, but you've been telling the truth. And so <laughs> uh, <laughs> the amazing thing about that growth rate is that even if you grow 5% every week, which is like, it sounds good, but it doesn't sound like an enormous number when you say 5% a week. That turns out to be 12x, like 12 times growth over the course of a year, which is enormous. Like no business is growing 12 times over the course of a year. And so like these small increments that you have on a weekly basis they really, really add up. And any business that is growing at 5% a week, that is a pretty incredible business. I think, and, and you, your point is right, linking it back to business. And everybody wants to raise money and spend money on marketing and all that stuff and, and supercharge your business. But most businesses that go really well just grow a little bit every week. So if you look at the in the great businesses uh, over, over the years, the Amazons, the Walmarts, whatever, they tend to grow incrementally. And I think Freakonomics guys did a great podcast on on incrementality. And well, I remember I told you that story. My wife, when my wife heard to me uh, about the Warren Buffett analogy when it, the first day of our business, and I was handing out flyers on Flinders Street in the mm. really cold, and she said it's like a, a snowball and just get snowflake by snowflake. That's that's really what business is. There's no, in, in my experience anyway, there's no secret weapon. It's just grow a little bit, a little bit, do lots of things right, uh, try and make more. Th- get more right than wrong you're going to get lots wrong because if you're not getting enough it's like i tell my kids i'm we're at the snow now if you're not falling over you're not trying hard enough it's a bit like business if you're not making the odd mistake well you're not trying hard enough you're keeping you're keeping too safe you're probably never going to win so you've got to get some stuff wrong and if you look at our five percent sort of weekly growth that's with that with zero marketing obviously we use our organic channels we haven't spent a cent on marketing the pod yet uh we probably will at some point we haven't yet so it's a really great audience so i didn't mean to interrupt you but i tried to spend money we'll talk about this in another episode i tried to go on linkedin and spend money and there was some issue and then they banned my account for like four days when I tried to spend money. So needless to say, that little red dot that says advertise, I'm not clicking on that thing again. But um, but let me tell you the <laughs> beauty of maths, um, which is, so if you grow at 5% a week, you grow at a bit over 12 times for the year if you can maintain that rate. If you grow at 6.5% a week, it's almost inconsequentially higher than 5%, almost inconsequentially. You wouldn't even notice. Like we're just, I, I'm flippant. I say, I don't know if we grow at 5% or 6.5%, flippant. If you can do that over a year, you more than double your total growth by that little increment. You grow like something like 26 times over the course of the year. And so it's these little increments of just consistency that lead to these big outcomes over time which I've always found the maths of that just to be so elegant and so beautiful and also like so motivating that you don't have to feel like every week you're hitting it out of the park. You just, a business that is growing like a rocket is a business that's growing a few percent a week, which is pretty remarkable as a concept. Just quickly on that as well is this the, the importance of understanding details for founders. So we do, and not just founders, as anybody who works in a business, definitely have to be a founder. But to know founders tend to be more over details because they start the business and they sort of know everything from the ground up. But but if, certainly if you're not, and a lot of sort of non-founders listen to the show as well. So clearly the majority is non-founders, but knowing every detail is super important as well. And knowing if your growth rates at five percent and it drops to three percent. 
and then you go, oh, hold on, is 3% the new normal? 3% is still actually an incredible growth rate per week. But if your growth rate does drop, to understand and to, and to try and rectify. So uh, really understanding uh, this great story. I can't mention names, but there was a billionaire founder. And this billionaire founder had hired a mate of mine to run one of his businesses for him. And multi-billionaire founder. And, and he bought, this is a side, little side business that was worth, he probably paid a couple of million bucks for this business. And this guy's worth billions. Anyway, the, my mate goes into him and, and the billionaire goes to him and says, oh, you know, uh, our new franchisees, are we charging him for these starter packs? And my mate goes, what do, you, what do you mean starter packs? He goes, oh, you know, like the things we give him to start, like it was like a franchise, it was like a food franchise. And they gave all the franchisees this starter pack of tongs and whatever else she needed. And my mate goes, yeah, of course we're charging. It's like 300 bucks a person. And, and the billionaire goes, you sure? Anyway, my mate goes off, checks some things. Shit, we haven't been charging people these 300 bucks a person for this starter pack thing. The billionaire, who's literally obviously worth billions, somehow noticed, I don't know how he noticed, but he noticed they weren't charging for this couple of hundred buck item that was obviously immaterial to his wealth and to his business, but he was so over the details that he noticed that. Uh, and that, and clearly that's, that's a big reason why this person is so successful. And it's a pretty common trait. And it's, if, if, you're, if you simply just work at a business, the ability to understand details and point out errors and go to a manager or an exec say, I think there could be something wrong here. I think we need to fix it is a, is a really valuable thing to do. Even if it's not exactly what you do, it's something you notice in, in business is super valuable. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, the way that I think about this is that if you're a business with a thousand customers on day one of, you know, January the 1st, 2024, and Let's, I'm just going to say, like, just for completeness, let's say every one of your customers pays the same amount of money and you've got a 100% retention of your customers. Yeah, like, let's just keep it simple. Let's say at the end of the first week of January, you've added four customers. It doesn't sound very impressive. Like, we've got 1,000 customers. Yeah, we sign up another four. Well, it's okay. It doesn't sound amazing. If you can do that, like, every week, just those four customers, well, obviously you're going to have to increase them as the number increases. One day it's going to go to five. But just that same rate of like four in a thousand rate of customer acquisition, that's a bit better than 25% growth over the year. And I'm not going to keep harping on this point, but like 25% growth is a pretty respectable growth rate for most businesses. Like it's just these little, like, you know, it's the story of like, the guy, the founder of um, Catapult, one of the co-founder, Sean Holthouse, he always says to me, there are a few stories that we grew up with that are like underutilized in explaining things for adults. And one of them is the tortoise and the hare, which he thinks is a really fantastic story. And I tend to agree with him. Like this is the tortoise and the hare story. And to be honest, like it's the tortoise that's going to grow 5X, 10X businesses just every day one foot in front of the other. That is the way that you grow businesses to be big. And the truth is that doing that, when you're inside the business, like it feels like the whole thing is exploding and it's hard to keep the wheels on the machine as it's so but that is all it is. It's just these few percent a week. So, and the beauty of slow growth generally is, is you just get better at stuff. So you obviously as you grow the business, you just get better at executing. So and using our podcast example, we've gotten better at this podcast in episode between episode one and episode 22 with that question. Uh, and if we had thousands and thousands of episode on episode, thousands and thousands of listeners in episode one, we'd probably lose all those listeners because we weren't ready for it. So we obviously had our, our, our friends and family and people who know us well listen early. And now we're sort of at third, fourth, fifth 
sort of rings now, which is great. But uh, it's that time and that experience. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell's famous 10,000 hour thing. We're nowhere near that yet. But you just get better at stuff as you do it more. So that's why I love bootstrap businesses and slow organic growth businesses so much versus the big bang raise 100 million bucks seed round. I just find those businesses hard to get right. Uh, this is why I'm trying to, I'm just trying to talk about the podcast because we promised that we would tell people some things about podcast metrics because this is not our job. We're totally transparent about this. We're just doing this, you know, for some fun and hopefully entertaining people and it's a bit educational. And so this is what I want to say about that I've learned about the podcast. And I have I see less data about this podcast than anyone, but this is what I learned from the data that I have seen. And I think people will find it interesting. So like generally speaking, there's a, a group of people that wants to listen to a podcast that's say 30 or 45 minutes long. And that's the minority of people that listen to this podcast. And there's a majority of people that listen to this podcast where it seems almost irrespective of how long the podcast is once it passes this 30 or 45 minute mark. We haven't done a four hour podcast, so we're not going to test the limits of this theory. But certainly out to an hour and a half, you see no additional drop off from listeners past that point in time. So I thought that that's been extremely interesting that the majority of people like will listen to something where we haven't hit the outer limit of them switching off and saying this is too long. And that and people did say that to me when I was um, first starting this podcast. They said the beauty of the podcast is people listen to it while they're doing something else. And so they'll listen to it in multiple sessions. And you'll find that if the, they like the content, there won't necessarily be much of a limit of for how long you can make the podcast. The other thing, and I'll, I'll say these couple of things, and then I'll let you comment, and you can add things if you want to because you know more about this than I do. The other thing I think that is just is interesting is um, – like podcasts, we, we can be blunt about this and say, in order not to like pay for stuff out of our own pocket from this podcast, we get we run some ads so that we can have Mike as a producer and do some other things, and maybe one day we'll get around to doing some marketing. There's no doubt that like there's some drop off fr- between the front of an ad and the back of an ad, but it's relatively minor, and certainly it was less than I feared it might be. And, you know, we've given a lot of thought to how we do the ads and we haven't perfected it yet, but I think they're, they're, they're much better than just the way that like radio runs ads, for example. And so what I'd say, I'd actually say to people, please don't drop off for the ads because like I don't want to have to pay for all of this stuff out of my pocket and neither do you. But, um, but it's much more of a non-issue than I feared it might be having these kind of ads. And I think it's because we, we only take advertisers where either we're familiar with the products or we like the people and we're prepared to speak about it ourselves as opposed to just letting anybody run ads. Yeah, most of the people we, we advertise, I've, either you or I have worked with, uh, and we can put our – wouldn't, we wouldn't say someone's a great uh, operator if, if we hadn't experienced it ourselves. So if you think of the ad, almost everybody we work with from Petona to uh, DMG to, to obviously people you've worked with, uh, obviously to, to Portal Ventures, I've worked with those all those people for a number of years and actually really – really happy that a lot of our listeners have actually sort of messaged me and I've introed them to, to the advertisers or they've called them directly. So it's, it's actually been a great result, a really good win-win. So we'll be able to connect uh, good businesses with with great listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, the last thing I was going to say is that, you know, the last couple of episodes have been much less structured episodes. So, you know, for the first 20 or so episodes, the way we structured it was you would do this like a a more formal kind of intro and then we would talk about a particular topic and the last couple have been less like that. And so I said, let me put something up on the LinkedIn page and ask people which one they prefer. And what's interesting is like something like, I don't know, 
a third of the people said they liked the more structured version of it. But the remainder, the majority said they like a less structured version and a chunk didn't care at all, which they were my happiest group of people. <laughs> and and so I did notice. <laughs> I love how they didn't care, still voted. Yeah, well, that's that good because that's that why I put the, the third thing. option in there. I don't care about your is, answer, but I'm going to tell you I don't care. I'm motivated <laughs> enough to give you an answer because you've asked me for an answer, but oh, you do what you want. I don't. And so I love, they're my favorite people. <laughs> I, did, I do know though. Yeah, absolutely. I do know what your preference is and what Mike's preference is. And the reason I know that is because, you know, I can see who voted and I saw you in the votes for the <laughs> unstructured version. So we don't have to have that conversation about which one you guys prefer. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we'll keep the. I, I think my suggestion is that we just keep rolling forward the way we're rolling. I think it's kind of it's going really well. So I, I will say this comment about you said to what have I done this week? And I, I didn't say this. I was up. I was down in Sorrento, on like the the uh, Melbourneian, the poor Melbourneian version of the northern beaches of Sydney. I will say, which is sadly true, but it was very nice. And I was down there meeting some friends who are. Oh, I won't out them because. Um, they should have, be able to have their holidays in privacy, but um, but we were down there, and I have to say that it continues to shock me the number of people, which is basically one hundred percent, that say to me, "Oh, I listen to your podcast; it's really nice." And then I have this awkward conversation where they start talking, like I don't necessarily know these people, and then they start talking to me about parts of my life that they know about because of the podcast and I literally know nothing about them. So that's an unusual interaction to now be having with people. So speaking of obviously water and beaches, I think, do you want to talk about uh, something about docks? You, you, you threw this on me, this this fascinating conversation you want to have. Yeah. So one of the other things that happened to this me this week in mean, more of a work context is, you know, I do like mentor a lot of businesses and they tend to now focus around businesses that are supplying physical goods like direct-to-consumer businesses or, or, or thereabouts. And there's been this common thread that has started to emerge in my conversations with them in terms of the issues that they've raised with me that they're having trouble with, and that is supply chain issues of actually getting product into Australia, mostly from Asia, China, and, and other places, and being able to distribute that to their customers. And I, and that was quite perplexing to me because I did pick up this pattern of problem and it's become quite a substantial problem. And I looked into it a bit further and I did have an inkling that there had been some industrial action going on on the wharves in Australia, but it's it's Christmas time. And so people are not very focused on the news like the uh, and they're not very engaged not at their desks. But what's going on on the wharves in Australia is pretty crazy to be honest with you so you know the way that the wharves work here is that most of the assets tend are like government-owned assets and then they lease out on very long leases to stevedores who are the companies that accept the ships and un unload them and then there's a work for a workforce that works for those stevedores and no doubt you remember I don't know, 15 years ago when Patrick Patrick had this big industrial dispute where they where Chris Corrigan really took on the it unions like and had this- It was 1998. It was 1998. Well, there you go. It was longer than Just I. to show your age, that was 25 yeah, years ago, it, I reckon. Well, there you go. I, I was pretty sure it was first uni. Yeah, and so that was a huge war that he fought against the unions and you know, it was really ugly and messy and quite violent at times. And, um, and my view of that is that contributed to improving the efficiency of- the wharves for a substantial period of time. But where we sit as of today is that there's this industrial action by the union against DP World, which is a Dubai, a big, big, big Dubai-based um, 
stevedore business. And this industrial action is severely damaging the Australian economy to the point where, and I'll tell you some of the demands that are being made, it's severely damaging the Australian economy to the point where a big shipping company whose name I can't quite pronounce, but I'm going to call it Maersk, they've said that their ships are being forced to wait for 10 days offshore before they can dock, which is just too expensive for them to maintain. They can't unload the number of containers that they previously have needed to unload, which means there are also fewer empty containers going back to China, for example, to bring more stuff. And the their comments are that the economy is starting to be significantly damaged by this strike. And you know, these are employees that are earning one hundred and thirty, one hundred and forty thousand dollars a year in total after all, you know their loadings, etc. And the demands that the unions are making are things like I think it's eight percent pay rises and thirteen days of sick leave with no doctor's certificate. And already today, I think that unions get to determine seventy percent of all of the employees of these stevedores. So, for example, you know, when you employ someone in your company, you get to decide who you employ. But on the wharves, in seventy percent of the cases, it's up to unions. They also want. Uh, they've also got a demand that says that if somebody leaves their job on the wharf to go and work for the union, then um, that job on the wharf, they want that job to be held open indefinitely until that person decides to leave working for the union and going back to the docks. And so, you know, you've got all of these, uh, I would say, like very, very, very aggressive demands. And I'm not saying that these stevedore businesses are squeaky clean businesses. I don't know. But what I know is that the Australian economy is dependent on efficiently getting products in and out of our ports. Without it, there is no Australian economy. This is like we're exporting as well from these ports. These are heavy agricultural export implications for this. And the what I, and it turns out what I've been hearing from the people that I've been mentoring about their inbound supply chain issues is this little snapshot I've received into the complete economy destroying debacle that's going on at the wharves today. And to finish this off, because I know you're going to have views on this and probably some some insights into this, that actually the Workplace Relations Minister has got the power to call an end to this strike if they think it's damaging the economy. Do you know who the Workplace Relations Minister is in Australia? Oh, I was going to say Tony Burke, but no, maybe it's not him. Yes, very good. I didn't know that he was the Workplace Relations Minister. I would classify him as one of my let's say, least favourite people in the Labor government to the point where I'm not sure his views on the world are suitable for him to be a representative in a Western liberal democracy. But well, certainly... Western, his seat's Western Sydney, obviously, so he's, he's got a constituency that is Paul, uh, Paul Keating's old seat, I think it is, or it's a, effectively Paul Keating's old seat. Obviously, he's got a very, a very certain type of demographic in that seat, so he plays to that to a degree. Uh, but... I'll go into well, I'll go find, into the point you're making in a second. Yeah, well, I, well, I find his views on that to be deplorable, but I find his broader views on the workplace to be deplorable. Like he's refused to step in because he, you know, he won't even acknowledge that this is causing significant damage to the economy. And then when Jim Chalmers, the treasurer, was questioned about whether he would step in and do something about this, he said. This is not his focus. His focus is on reducing the cost of living. Well, I've got a news flash for him. They're pretty closely related. Like, 
this is like the supply side of his supply and demand equation. And so I do not – the problem is that I feel like this government is not taking this issue seriously and it really has the potential to cause increasing amounts of damage to the economy. I'm, as I said to you, I can see that it's already causing some damage to the economy and whether it's because of the Labor affiliation to the union movement or because politically they don't think – uh, it's palatable or because they genuinely don't see the issue. I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know the answer to that. But something needs to be done here because th- this is very, very problematic what's going on. And as the economy picks up after uh, after Christmas and we go into Chinese New Year, which is a big export time for Australian exporters, this is going to be catastrophic if this is not fixed. One tiny point and one obviously just major point. The small point is you talk about Maersk, which is the Danish Shipping, so there's nothing. That's not. They're not Steve Biddles. They're the shipping company. Uh, you know, they're, they're the biggest company in Denmark. Yes, that's right. They made a profit of 18 billion euros a couple of years ago, uh, which is bigger than BHP, our biggest company. So little Denmark, which has a much smaller population than us, has a much bigger business than us in in Maersk, which is really interesting. Uh, but back to your your main point, and I think it's a it's an interesting point. Like, well, I want to say also Denmark. Denmark is the home of Novo Nordisk as well. Absolutely. Actually, Novo is bigger than them. Obviously, uh, overtook them. Yeah. So. Denmark, you know, I, I, I rave constantly about my recent trip to Copenhagen, but Denmark is a very remarkable country on many levels. Uh, but back to your, to your, I guess, the main point on, on Labor government, and it's a really interesting So Labor, in my view, is a pretty centrist government in many ways. So look at most of their policy. They're really like Democrats in the US, very centrist. But you look at, then look at Donald Trump, who obviously was, was far, far more right, but most of what Donald Trump did wasn't overly impactful. So did lots of stuff and it can be overturned because a lot of, it did a lot of stuff by sort of executive decree. So then Biden come and just overturn that because he didn't control the legislature. There was only so much he could, he could do. But obviously the, the biggest impact of Trump's reign was really him altering the course of the Supreme Court. So he was able to, I think, appoint, I think, three justices of the Supreme Court, which gave court the conservatives the majority, which eventually led to Roe versus Wade being overturned, uh, which has caused all sorts of problems now for the Republicans. But so if you look at sort of Trump's legacy, it was it was that sort of unusual fate of luck that he was able to control the Supreme Court. If you look at the Labor government here, most of what they're doing is pretty centrist. You could almost say they're like a mini liberal government in many ways. Uh, but the one thing where I think they really have maintained much more call it labor to their labor roots is in the workplace field. They've, had, they've passed a bit of legislation already, which is really watering down employer rights. You can say that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's certainly, if you look at sort of across their policies generally, and Chalmers is very much a centrist in many ways. Elbow in many ways is a centrist as well, currently anyway. But certainly in the labor field, and you said with Tony Burke being sort of on the left side of labor, uh, they've made, they've really pushed labor laws leftwards. And if you go back to the 98, I think it was 98 um, dispute, that was had John Howard and Peter Reith in power. And that's what allowed, that's what gave Chris Corrigan the cover, because they changed the Workplace Relations Act, gave Chris Corrigan the cover to be able to bring in those sort of third-party contract workers and effectively lock out his workers. And, and that's effectively how it caught, fixed up the wolves. Now that I presume it's the CFMEU, or I'm not sure exactly what the union is, uh, that, that, that effectively you, the old painters and dockers, uh, but whatever that union is, uh, knows they've got a, a much more friendly government now in Labor and can really push the envelope a lot more. So the point you're making is, is re- a really um, good one and that it's a real problem. And this could be the equivalent of Donald Trump's Supreme Court, uh, the Labor government's impact on on labor laws, uh, and we'll see how it transpires. But ultimately, what that 
what that ends up being is, is wages increase, which is in certain parts of the economy, which you can say is a good thing, but also employment decreases because if you have to pay people more, you hire less people. And to your point, second order effects are if you're exporting less, you're also hiring less people. So it does have a dampening effect across the economy. A small, a really small cohort of people win, i.e. stevedores, they get paid a lot more, uh, but everybody else loses. So it's it's not a great result. And this is the could be the legacy of this Albanese Labor. And it looks like the polls would be leave. This could be a one-term government because they really haven't been able to connect with voters, it looks like. Yeah, so the union here is the Maritime Union. I only know that because I read it. So that's a, And they're like, I'll characterise them as a union whose motto should be like, it's not going to go well if you mess with us. Like that's that kind of union. By the, MUA. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so um, – I, I pretty much agree with every comment you just made about the government. Like, I think this is a much more centrist government than I feared it might be. I like the way you, that you said, like, Albo is currently centrist. Like, I think he's made a conscious decision to try and move to the middle much more. And on on a lot of issues, they're more of a centrist government. I think, you know, my views are I think they've sold out some of the Western values and some global conflicts, but um, but I think generally they're much more centrist than I thought they would be, which is r- really good, as we keep saying. Like, we're both pretty much centrists in our thinking. I'm not an anti-union person at all. I think if you have no unions, then there are some nasty people running businesses that are going to take advantage of workers, and there is a reason that the union movement was established, and it was established based on in my view, like a virtuous basis of protecting people that had no power unless they collectively came together. And obviously what happens over time is the pendulum just swings back and forth. And so the concept which started off in a, as a very noble concept got momentum, was taken over by people that were more militant and just you know, periodically gets more and more aggressive and wields power and becomes very unfair and starts trying to oppress large companies, which sounds like it can't happen, but it can happen. Like, we see that it happens. And I feel like your comments about workplace relations are spot on. And my gut feel is that if the workplace relations policies of this government continue, then yes, they might end up being a one-term government, although I don't think it's going to sink them, this particular issue. But I certainly think it's going to damage the economy enough that it will have implications on people's employment in this country. And this wharf dispute, to me, is a litmus test on how this government is going to respond to a real problem when their natural constituency and their natural allies are on the wrong side of this particular issue. And so I think this is important to see how this plays out. Governments have huge cognitive or recency bias. So remember when inflation was starting? two years ago, 18 months ago, everybody said it's transitory, inflation won't last, supply chain's been gunked up because they hadn't experienced inflation in X number of years. So people, I remember I was railing against inflation for a decade, so I was wrong for a while and finally got it right. But so there's, so politicians have this cognitive recency bias. I think it's the same here. We've had low unemployment for so long, call it under 4%, which is unnatural in many ways. Eventually that will you know how much I love things reverting to the mean. That will revert to the mean. And it's almost a bit of a game of pass the pass. If you're in government when that happens, unemployment pops up to 7 8%, you're probably stuffed, even if it's not your fault. In this case, Labor's probably contributing to it. But unfortunately, it's, it's sort of things revert to the mean and everybody forgets that. It's very hard for the economy and unemployment to be your fault in the first term of government. It's not impossible, but it's very hard. It's like... CEOs of very large companies, let's say ASX 50 businesses, 
their ability to have a material impact on the company within their own tenure of that business it's not it's not high like most of the impact of their tenure happens after they've already left the company and so i think that there is a lot of that that happens with government as well it's just a characteristic of large organizations i think it's a year i think for for a business if it's got a CEO or founder or whoever leaves, I think the person who takes over has a year of inheriting a mess or inheriting something really good. So if obviously, depending on what the circumstance is, and after a year, that new person's imprint then becomes relevant. But for the first year, if the business goes really well, it's probably the sort of credit of the predecessor. If it goes really badly, it's probably the fault of the predecessor. Uh, you probably can't blame the new person. But after 12 months, I reckon that's that. That's the time where there's enough water under the bridge where it's the successor's fault either way. It depends what the decision is. Like, a high quality, let's say you have a CEO and they've made this high quality strategic decision and they've been, let's say, a four-year CEO of a large company and three it took them three years to implement that strategy and let's say it's a killer strategy, whoever the next CEO is, like they will just get to ride the wave of that good strategic thinking and take the credit for it Every half year, every full year, they will look like heroes. And really, they might still be a good CEO in their own right, but that heroism is coming on the shoulders of the giant that was there before them. And markets love, I mean, human beings love heroes. They love stories of heroes. They love rock star CEOs. And so what they tend to do is just attribute all success that comes to the person who's filling the shoes at that point in time. And as I've observed these businesses and as, as I've seen the insides of some of them, it just does not work that way at all. Like so much of the performance of large companies is about the momentum that they have. And I think government, there's a chunk of government that's the same. That's a good point. I think why don't we move on to our next topic, can you get the theme of just rolling on? Because I know you want to talk about – we talked about dating sites about three weeks ago uh, and it was a pretty interesting discussion. And we, we couldn't quite work out why – if you look at Match.com, the world's biggest, and just to actually clarify, I actually made a, a an error on that. I said Bumble was part of Match. It's actually not. Bumble's a separate company. Uh, so apologies to listeners for, for that. So Bumble's a separate company worth about 1.8 billion US. Uh, Match is worth around, I think, what, 8 or 9 billion US. US. So they sort of jumped around. It's, it's recovered a bit off its lows. So we talked about it a, bit a few weeks ago, and I think you had some views on, on the sector. This is really interesting. So we spoke about Match.com, and just to continue to demonstrate our ability to predict the future on this podcast. Literally two days ago, a huge uh, activist investor called Elliot, who's pretty well known in the US and has had a lot of success being an activist investor. And Aren't those the guys who tried to um, bankrupt Argentina or something? Oh, I don't know about that. That's a good bit of inside that. if that's true there's some sorry, I'll have a look at while well, you go on, they're big, I'll, I'll they're big and they've had a lot of success and they've just popped up with a $1 billion investment in Match.com, which is about 10% of their stock. And it's kind of raised a lot of eyebrows about what they're planning to do with this business and where they see the opportunity in this business. And so I thought it would be worthwhile just looking at Match.com in some more detail because, you know, we had this conversation about the difficulty in in building and running, especially growing um a dating site business and the the performance of this company and what's going on inside is i think uh, a really big insight into the way that these businesses need to run in order to make money and what they do so just to clarify what 
Match.com owns. Just before that, yep. can I just jump in on, on Elliott Capital Management? So the Argentina, so they made $2 billion US effectively um, shorting Argentina or buying its debt and, and trying to claim it. And at one point, I think in 2012, it got a Garden court to allow it to repossess an Argentinian Navy vessel. So that's how they, how it got its money back. So these guys have arguably the sharpest elbows in town. So I'm probably not the best people you want in your register. Well, they're here, and so this is what this is what um, Match.com is all about. So, if we think about, you know, this business, it is mostly a Tinder business. A bit of it is Hinge, you know, the, the website Hinge, and then it's got an Asian operation and something they called Evergreen and Emerging, which I'll I'll just largely ignore. So, to give you an idea of the, the scale of this business, like in the trailing twelve months, I think it was till the end of this year approximately like their revenue is something circa three three or three and a half billion dollars and they are a very profitable business now we're going to talk about what their profitability is but i would say even on a reported basis they are keeping 26 percent or so of their revenue as profit before tax so this is a high quality high margin business that is making you know, let's call it $800 million of operating profit on three, three and a half billion dollars of revenue. So that's a proper business, okay? I'm not going to argue with that. Just to make a quick point though, this, these are very much freemium businesses and that the vast majority of its customers don't pay. So you'd expect it to have a pretty good profit margin when you only get money from a small cohort of customers. So it's a high margin business in that sense well not necessarily not necessarily because so you might say you would expect it to have a pretty high revenue per paying customer perhaps in that situation but remember that the money that they get so i'll get into detail of how many people are paying and how their business model actually works but um but you have to fund all of the non-paying business operations with the money of the people that pay. So that's the problem with freemium businesses is that there is a whole chunk of a business that you're funding for no revenue. So let me tell you a bit about this business. So the challenge that this business has is that fewer people are paying than paid previously. So that generally for most companies is a problem. So I'm talking about their third quarter results, which I think ended in the end of September last year. So that's not good news. So the number of customers that they actually have paying has gone from, let's call it 16.5 million to 15.7 million. So you'll notice it's a big number, but the challenge they've got is if you look at the Americas, if you look at Europe, if you look at APAC and other, like it's just, it's down everywhere across the board. So this is a business that is going backwards, despite going backwards pretty significantly in the number of payers. So they went backwards by, let's say, let's call it 5%, and the Americas went backwards by almost 10%. Their total revenue for the three months ended, you know, 30th of September 2023, their total revenue was up by 9%. Basically, they've brought in a new CEO. I mean, this is a business that's got a lot of CEO problems. I think they've had seven CEOs in 12 years or something like that. But what this business is basically doing is they've brought in the former CEO of Zynga, you know, that gaming business. That business was, the, you know, they make Farmville. Remember that game Farmville, yep. a casual game? Yeah, yeah, of course. The original, the original Facebook, the original Facebook games business, wasn't it? Yeah. And so that was bought by Take-Two Interactive and the CEO was 
finished up. And so they brought this CEO into this business. And if there's one thing the CEO of Zynga knows, it is how to monetize every last cent out of a freemium business model. And so this business of Match.com is embarking on a monetization push where they're seeing the number of subscribers going backwards by the amount that subscribers are paying going forwards. So what we, they've had is a pretty significant increase in revenue per payer from like $16.02 to $18.39, which I presume is monthly. I think that's how the numbers work out. But, but that's a substantial increase. And so what you've got here is a business that's going backwards in subscribers, which is what we said the problem was with this, these types of businesses. It's hard to retain and customers. But they are starting to find ways. This is really the first quarter in the September quarter where they're starting to find ways to effectively jack up their prices. And this is working most effectively at Hinge. Like Hinge had a very huge increase in revenue from the the September quarter of 22 to 23. They went from $74 million to $107 million in revenue, which is a 44% increase. And it's starting to become pretty material on the way to being material to this business. And so essentially what you've got here is a business that, is trying to reposition itself as making more money from fewer customers, from fewer paying customers, which is, I mean, that is an, a high-risk strategy, basically, because you never know where the price elasticity is in this type of thing. I did read that one of the ideas that this Zynga CEO ha- has and has implemented is to have a $500 a month select level of membership for Tinder, $500 a month. I mean, how desperate would you need to be to hook up with people to be paying $6,000 a year for the privilege of doing it? And the features that have been added for this select level, uh, I, I need to add in a very defensive manner that I'm not at all familiar with the apps themselves, but what has been added is that, so, you know, the CEO is quick to say, you know, we've still got the swiping model for choosing people, but now you can message people without matching with them. That's what you get for $500 a month. You can message whoever you want. And so what this is is effectively a workaround that says if you feel like you're not messaging, you're not matching with people who look the way that you want them to look, just pay us $500 a month and you can message anybody you like. And there's some caveats. We have to approve people on this select plan. It's only going to be 1% of, of members. Of course, it's going to be 1% of members. No one is going to pay $500 a month, you know? So well, I, think, I think that's Tinder's take on – that's Tinder's – an app called Raya. Have you heard of Raya, which is sort of an elite dating app where you have to qualify – it sort of turns out that um, the, the men tend to be millionaires on there and the women often are very attractive, but not always. Like, as in, there can be very successful women on there as well uh, and often one and the same. Uh, but Raya, I'm not sure if Raya, what Raya's profit sort of driver is, but Tinder Select is very much a Raya where you're sort of trying to get caught the coolest night, quite the coolest nightclub. Uh, so Tinder, the challenge I think a bit is that Tinder started off being pretty cool. It was a bit like that why Facebook started being pretty cool in colleges. And then a bit like Facebook now is certainly not cool. Uh, and Tinder sort of is, I presume, you know, I'm not on, like, I'm not on, on these apps, but I presume gets, they, I presume they have to get less cool. It's like a nightclub. Nightclubs start off really cool. And then when everybody can get into them, they're no longer cool. And I think Tinder has sort of become a bit of that. I was trying with Tinder Select to cordon off that, that area of the nightclub. Again, I'm not sure if it'll work, but I think that's what they're trying. Well, you know, like, as I said, Hinge has had a huge jump, and I think Hinge is still a cool app by the looks of these numbers. Tinder's revenue rose 11% year on year. That's 
a pretty respectable level of growth at this volume of business. The problem, I mean, there are problems like their their Asian business is just running in reverse, and I think it's it's doing pretty badly. And you can't look past this idea that you know if this was a business that was increasing its growth in revenue per payer. This is what you'd want: increased growth in revenue per payer, increased percentage of payers, and increased total total users. And what they've got is increased revenue per payer for this quarter. It's the first quarter, but actually total number of paying customers going backwards. And so that is, to me, a bit of a red flag. It's not a reason to not get involved in it altogether, but it is a bit of a a red flag. And so this is a business that is essentially saying the next phase of growth is going to be all about getting more money from individual paying customers. And one of the things they do boast about, which I thought was interesting, is that although they're going backwards in terms of total payers, the the level of acquisition they're seeing across the f- across the female demographic that they have on the platform, both under twenty six and I think they're, it's twenty six to thirty five. I can't remember exactly. They're both improving dramatically, and so it turns out that the, the this won't surprise you, but the way that the economics of these platforms work is that you have to get women onto the platforms, and then it's pretty easy to get men onto the platforms. And so really their acquisition is heavily focused on conversion of women trying out the platform to women that are actually staying on the platform and ideally paying for the platform. The reason Elliott Investment Management is so interested in this business, I think, is because people believe that the monetization level of these payers is not very high and there's lots of ability to kind of test the elasticity of how much they're willing to pay. And people believe lots – this is a, a very widely covered company. It's like got 20 or 21 analysts covering it. And most of them believe that this business can go back to double-digit revenue growth, which is kind of where it's heading. I think that is that is what people are seeing in this business. It's a $45 billion business at its peak, down to 9 or $10 billion today. So I think that's what people are seeing as well. If you look at Bumble, that's growing fast. I think Bumble's growing sort of 15-plus percent a year. Uh, and is also profitable. Um, so Bumble's an interesting. Bumble, Bumble's been even hit harder in terms of share price. Right? And Whitney Wolf Heard, who's the founder, has sold a bunch of shares. Uh, so it's actually quite a small business now. If you get one point eight billion US, is actually given how sort of well known Bumble is globally and how many users, actually pretty small market value. I think that I think your point's right. Would I be a buyer of this of either of these businesses? I, I worry about the competitive advantage point. Like are, they're, not, they're really not. At their best, they should be great network businesses because the more people that, a bit like a social network, the more people who use Tinder or Bumble, the more liquidity in the marketplace, the more potential partners you, you, you can find. So it, it really is a network type business. But as you know, when network businesses go in reverse and they start shrinking, it's a real problem. Uh, so a network business that goes in reverse almost has not zero value, but next to zero value. So the value in these businesses now is they make, as you said, they make money. So it becomes almost a com- commodity play in a way. So you, you're just trying to squeeze that cigar butt for, for the profit before it before, – again, compare, I compare these businesses to like digital nightclubs or digital pubs. Eventually, nightclubs go out of fashion. You're an owner of a nightclub. You want to make as much money as you can while, while you're hot. So I think these guys are just trying to make as much money as they can while they're hot. And eventually, that cigar runs out of puffs because if you're going backwards in terms of users, yes, you can monetize in the short term, but I would be 
very nervous to own this business if it's going backwards in terms of users because the utility of the business. Well, I don't think the problem with this business is the network effects. I think you've correctly said they do have great network effects. Like, you know, if you think about network effects as like every every new member also adds value to the additional members, that's absolutely the case with this. The problem is they have very low switching costs, these businesses. So you can just leave and go and use another one or use another one simultaneously and there's no pain or suffering to leaving the platform. And so I think – Unlike a Facebook or an Instagram where you've got followers. So that there is a big – That's right. That's a much better – that's a a business with strong network effects and high switching costs. That's that's the business that you want. This has got no switching costs. That's the issue with – this business. We'll, we'll talk, I've got a, an article on Atlassian for our contrarian listenership that I'll, I'll post on the website, on the, on the LinkedIn page soon. But if you look at Atlassian, they've got a similar problem. They're growing revenue at a decent clip, sort of mid-20s percentage, but then basically not growing customers at all. So Atlassian have the exact same problem as, as Match. Able to grow revenue, but not so they're getting more, they're squeezing more of this lemon every every for every customer. But clearly the market doesn't like, but they still like Atlassian, they don't like the Match situation. Again, Match has dropped sort of 80%. Bumble's dropped even more because the market hates these businesses losing customers because they worry about losing that switching, switching costs are low. They're worrying about these not being the cool place to go anymore. And as soon as it becomes uncool and people just start stopping, people stop using it, suddenly it's really hard to monetize. So you can only monetize for that short window while you're, while you're popular. Let me, so let me tell you a few things you love about this business and then I'm going to tell you some things that are going to make you very angry. So what you love is... <laughs> The, the economics of this business are actually really good. Like they bring in, let's say, like for every dollar of revenue they bring in, what they call their gross profit, it's a bit hard to know, but it's their gross profit's 71% on that and it's gotten better. So they call it cost of revenue. It, they don't really specify what it includes, but it's getting better. And what's really good is they're keeping their sales and marketing expenses under 20% of revenue. Like I think it's 16 or 17%, and that's really strong. And all of this flows through to operating margins, like I'd call like real reported operating margins, that can be in the high 20s, 26 28%, and it does throw off free cash. So on a purely economic basis, like this is a robust business model that is generating strong margins and able to liberate cash. So I like that about this business. I don't like that it's trading on 22 times earnings for a business that is growing at the moment in high single-digit percentages and it's debatable if the growth drivers are going to continue to perform because it's essentially, as we said, increasing prices with a diminishing customer base and they've had one quarter of proving that it can happen. But but the economics of the business itself, if, if this was a low earnings multiple business, I think it would be a no-brainer that this is a good thing to buy. But let me just tell you some things that are going to infuriate you about this business. So I want to just read to you the, this sentence from the CEO's letter, okay? Let's listen to this and tell me how angry this sentence makes you as CEO speak, So they're talking about the need to focus more on the Gen Z audience, okay? Gen Z is approaching dating differently than millennials. Okay, so that's not an offensive statement. It's just a motherhood statement. How about this one? They seek inclusivity as well as greater authenticity and more dimensionality. You like that sentence? That's not the best sentence. When I read sentences like that in letters from CEOs, 
I worry that the reason the CEO used words like this, like dimensionality, which it actually may not even be a word, the reason they're using these kind of words is because they don't have the clarity of thought about what is going on with their customers and the insight and understanding, and therefore they are not able to communicate it crisply. And then when they talk about AI, they have this similar kind of not wording, but like narrative, I would call it, which is um, they're talking about what AI is doing. And they say, these include helping users select their optimal photos and leveraging AI to highlight why a given profile may be a good match. Okay, that's largely meaningless. We're also working on larger AI projects that more holistically improve the end-to-end dating experience. We will share more about those plans as they progress. When I read that, I think, you're working on nothing and you don't know what to work on and you've got some AI problems in the business and not a good grasp of it. So I found that to be worrying, those two comments taken together in terms of the level of understanding and sophistication. Unless you're an actual AI business, uh, like OpenAI, these companies that talk about AI, and there's a lot of them, and Lassian's one of them, but there's, there's lots. Of, I, I hate it. It sounds like just absolute jazz hands. I'm going to give. I'm going to tell analysts what they want to hear and confuse people, be like both your comments. Show us what – if you're a CEO, tell us about why you're creating a competitive advantage, why customers use your product, and why you can get more money out of those customers. Talk about anything like, I'm going to use AI to build stuff. Well, that, that ultimately is completely meaningless because it's, it, unless it leads to customer growth and revenue growth, it's, it's irrelevant. Absolutely agree. So, And so let me tell you these last two quick things. So one little thing you may not like about this business is they're sitting on $4 billion of long-term debt. And they've got a pretty hefty interest bill attached to that. And they've got like 700 mil of cash in the bank. But that's a headache, that debt for them. But they are making money though. So it's not catastrophic debt, but it's not great. Yeah, they can service the debt based on earnings. Now I'm going to tell you the thing that will make you angriest of all because I know how you think (laughs) about the world. So in the appendices, they have like reconciliation of their non-gap measures to their gap measures. So we could... Now, in a harsh way, we could call it reconciliation of their made-up measures that look good to the measures they have to report. I actually am not that cynical. Like some gap measures are crazy, and some non-gap measures are really provide really good insight into the business. But you tell me if you think this is one. So this is the reconciliation of net earnings, which is a reported metric, to adjusted operating income. Okay. So I want to tell you what they do to their net earnings to turn it into what they call adjusted operating income. So they take their net earnings. And then they put the income tax back. So that's okay. Like it feels like they're going to try and turn this into an yeah, EBIT number. That's fine. And they do. They yeah. put their $47 million of income tax back and their $40 million of interest income back in. That's fine. And they even honestly take out this $8 million of other income that they've earned because they say this is not really the core business's adjusted operating income. Mm. So you're happy with all of that, right? So fine. Far, so, so that takes their net earnings that they reported from 163 mil and now we're up to what they call operating income where they've just made those changes that we think are just like EBIT changes. Now they've gone from 163 to 244, no problem. Now this is what they do. Now they're going to put back the stock-based compensation expense. That's $61 million for this, 62 mil for this period. Yeah. Now they're going to put back depreciation. That's 17 mil. So we're heading towards an EBITDA and they put back the impairments and amortization of intangibles. And once they go and put all of that back in, they've turned 163 
into 333. And now they, instead of calling this an EBITDA, they call it adjusting operating income. And suddenly they're saying our operating income margin is not really 28%. We've got an adjusted operating income margin of 38%. And my biggest concern overall with this is that they seem to have put the depreciation back in. But the concern is that um, I wonder if they're capitalizing any of the development expenses that are not hitting this adjusted operating income number. And so that would effectively mean a chunk of development costs are not in there. What does the cash flow statement say? Because it may be in the cash flow statement. It's hard to it's hard to see whether they're um, dumping some of this onto the cash flow statement because if you look at their investing activities, they've just got this line item called capital expenditures, and for the nine months to September thirty, it was fifty million dollars, and I can't think of a lot else that they could be buying for fifty yeah. million dollars except people coding stuff. I think the I think the fifty has to go out, and I think the sixty for stock based absolutely has to go out. So I, I don't think they can add about one hundred and ten in. So if you if you take out that one hundred and ten, you get back to sort of two forty. So it's what a forty two, times or two twenty actually. Of that yeah, about a forty times multiple yeah. of that, which is pretty expensive for a business that's not growing its customers. And so that I think you know, my view is that these non gap measures should make things easier for investors to understand. And if so, if they were saying that their adjusted operating income is the closest proxy they can get to to the cash performance of the business, that would be fine. They would do what you just described. They would actually leave out the stock-based compensation expense as they have, and then they would say, this is a close proxy for the cash side of this business and what it's generating. But I don't really – in fact, I hate non-GAAP measures that don't provide any additional insight to investors on how the business is really performing. They just make the business look like it's performing better than the GAAP measures make it look like it's performing. So – all in all, what's your take? I think it's a very interesting bit of insight into this business. It's an unusual business. There are not a lot of businesses that operate like this. What's your take on Elliott Investment Partners, I think they're called, and their involvement? And what do you think about this business? And what do you think Elliott's going to try and do with it? My gut feel is Elliott's come in as almost a, a vulture kind of player here. And that's kind of what they are. And they're, they're super smart people. I think it's Paul Singer who's the founder and CEO. Super smart people. And that's obviously think of that Argentina Argentina play. They've done many of these. I think that I think they they know this business has got limited shelf life, and they think they can get some puffs out of it and make it's a kind of that old school vulture PE play. I'm not sure this is a, a great business. I don't, I'm not sure in ten to fifteen years time if this business will even be around. They're, they're fad type businesses. There's there's a network. There's no stickiness, so you can the network can lose its value really quickly. Uh, we're seeing, we're seeing, you look at, compare this to Facebook. So Facebook has been on a decline probably for six, probably six or seven years now. It's still used by, call it people over 40, but people under 40 don't really use Facebook anymore, but Facebook's still very profitable. So if you look at, and Zuckerberg to his obviously credit because he's a super smart guy, bought Instagram back in what, 2012, because you could see Facebook starting to lose that luster. He bought Instagram and then he obviously bought WhatsApp. So he's got Facebook as the cash cow and, and obviously Insta and WhatsApp as the potential. Insta makes money now and, and WhatsApp potentially coming through. So Zuckerberg's gotten ahead of it and has effectively replaced the replaced Facebook's earnings with Insta's earnings then replaced Insta's with WhatsApp's eventually. I don't think there's a replacement for that. Match just has a bunch of similar businesses. You said they've got the Asian dating business, got Tinder, it's got Hinge, which is growing, but 280 million or something like that, or 400 million annualized. So it's really small and, and irrelevant. Uh, you've got Bumble, which has proved to be a pretty good competitor and is growing faster. Uh, I'm not sure either of these businesses will be around, though, in 10 to 15 years' time. I'm not sure what will, the situation of online dating will be, but 
I'm not sure. There'll be there'll be plenty more puffs of cigar, and I think maybe Elliot makes some money from that. But go back to first principles. I'm not, not sure these businesses add enough value to users in the long term and can hold that value to be a really valuable business. Do you not think that um, Match.com might have enough sophistication in the industry to be able to effectively be a home for this category of business and just keep adapting to whatever, whichever of these businesses sort of comes up and help them grow and help them scale and it's effectively going to be this category killer irrespective of you know some turnover of the individual businesses in the category? Not really. Like, so you're saying they've got some sort of competitive advantage in tech or know-how? Or in no, industry knowledge maybe but is what I'd think of. They've had to of. buy all these businesses. They've, yeah, So Match true. bought Tinder. It was Match.com. It bought Tinder. It bought Hinge. It bought Plenty of Fish. It bought all the Asian stuff. Uh, it hasn't really grown. It's actually proved to be inept at growing businesses because it has to keep buying them. Uh, so that, and then you've got Bumble, who, and Whitney will have heard, who obviously was, was a, well, you can argue she's a co-founder or a very early stage employee of Tinder. That's that's the dispute that her and Sean and Justin, the founders, had. Uh, but either way, she's out-executed them with Bumble, clearly. And obviously, Bumble's been hit harder uh, share price-wise, but Bumble makes money as well, and Bumble's growing faster. And I think Bumble, when you speak to users, it feels like more people meet people on Bumble than Tinder these days. Um, more people I speak to anyway, it could be a small sample size. So I'm highly pessimistic about these businesses, going, we'll call it Match and, and Bumble, um, especially Match. Uh, and uh, Elliot obviously have a different thesis to me. I think they can probably puff some more dollars out of the cigar. Maybe they can, but it's a high multiple. As you say, it's probably a 40 or 50 times real multiple here. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't be a buyer. Well, that was not for a f- full period. I think it's more like a twenty times real multiple because that wasn't for the for a full year oh, period. Okay, then it was, was like, quarter. what did you? Okay. It was a quarter exactly. Okay, okay, well, it makes it that a lot less bad. Yeah, yeah. But do you think Facebook should buy this business? It would be very unzuckerberg like if, if you look at the businesses Facebook's bought, WhatsApp, the two big ones, really WhatsApp and Insta, both two of the best acquisitions of all time, especially Insta, probably the second best acquisition of all time, I think. Oh, the two best, you think of the two best acquisitions of all time. One's probably Booking.com, which is bought by Priceline, which is now worth about $100 billion. They paid $300 million. I paid about $180 million for it. And you look at Insta that was bought for a billion is probably worth a couple of hundred. So Booking may be slightly better on, on that multiple level, but both incredible purchases. Zuckerberg bought a business, at, and, and WhatsApp, he paid $19 billion for, but it was still pretty early days in WhatsApp or early-ish. I, I can't see Zuck buying a business like this. This just doesn't. I can't, unless you got it super cheap. Yeah. The other thing Elliot's spending their time doing, by the way, I thought you'd find this interesting, is so they're agitating at Salesforce. They've got a big stake yeah. in Salesforce and trying to shake that business up. And they're agitating at Pinterest and got themselves a board seat at Pinterest and are trying to shake that business up. I noticed that when I was reading through this that Pinterest put out this statement when they let Elliot onto the board saying, we look forward yeah. to like working with Elliot, yeah, and I thought, well, that can't be true. <laughs> it's like it's completely not true. Yeah. I'm surprised about the Facebook uh, Salesforce as well. I think Salesforce is a. We can talk about that different episode, but I, I, I'm aware of obviously a big Salesforce user, and expecting most Salesforce. You, I don't think everyone to buy a business that people that the users hate it. I think most Salesforce users, maybe this. There's three types of Salesforce products, Service Cloud, Marketing Cloud, Sales Cloud. The legacy Sales Cloud product is fine. The other two, I don't know anybody who doesn't hate them. Well, at the end of, like at the beginning of 2023, you know, Salesforce had a bit of a bad run and I think the investors were agitated and Elliot was getting ready for a proxy fight to, you know, have more influence. And then Salesforce did the greatest 
had the greatest response that you can possibly have in that situation, which is to release improved results. And so that I think that took a lot of the wind out of those sails. But my, my point more is, as you said, with the Argentinian stuff, like this is an activist investor that's big, rich, ex- very experienced. D- like I would say more than doesn't mind a fight, is pretty happy to do things through fighting. Like I think this is going to be a pretty interesting uh, uh, business scenario to watch as it plays out. That sounds right. And we'll go to a super quick break and be back with a listener question. So, idea, what do you think of the challenge of hiring developers and product managers these days? That's got to be one of the toughest parts of uh, of growing a business, especially with the uh, demand for talent at the moment. I couldn't agree more. And that's why at Luxury Escapes, we boost our onshore team with developers from Petona, a fully Australian-owned and managed platform that was built to help businesses scale up with less capital, ultimately getting profitable faster. With Petona, They'll help you scale or build your team with incredible talent in places like Sri Lanka, Philippines, or India via a permanent remote staff or contractors. So should I assume that based on um, your enthusiasm, you've been working with Petona and you like them? I actually used to be really skeptical of hiring any developers offshore, but the beauty of Petona is it's owned and operated by Australians and led by Simon Lee, who's built and scaled multiple tech businesses. So you can really trust them to find great talent. We actually started with just a couple of resources and scaled to more than 15 team members. So Petona are perfect for businesses looking to scale. If you're pre-product, they're probably not for you. But they work with smaller businesses as well as big enterprise clients, including Treasury Wine Estates, Accolade Wines, Luxury Escapes, of course, Little Birdie, Impos, and Old Sale. If you're struggling to find and scale a tech team, then go to the Petona website at petona.com.au and click on Get Started. So welcome back, and we'll go to our first listener question from Liam. Hi, this is Liam. I typically listen to podcasts with video, as I see it as almost the definitive way to listen to it due to having the additional medium of visuals instead of just audio. And I was wondering if you'd put some episodes of The Contrarians on YouTube as long-form videos rather than just shorts. Thank you, Liam. That is a great question. Uh, loves podcasts with video. Liam sounds like he's a a pretty smart guy, idea. Uh, would we put some episodes of Contrarians on YouTube uh, as long form? So I know we've we've certainly talked about this. We've filmed our Ruslan episode, uh, and our producer Mike's got some great experience filming. So we certainly do want to get a lot more episodes on 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 film and on YouTube. Are we are we close to that? You think? Well, this is the more philosophical question that you should be asking yourself. So you know now when you go sometimes you meet people and you say. Someone will introduce you and say, this is Adam Schwab, and someone might say to you, I don't say this facetiously, I actually, uh, uh, I can't even believe these words are coming out of my mouth, but I say them seriously. Somebody will say to you, oh, oh, you're the guy from the podcast, I listen to your podcast. So that happens to you, like that happens to me. So the question is, do you want someone in that situation when you meet them to look at you and say, aren't you Adam Schwab? That's the decision that you need to make because, like, you know, like we're trying to 10x the listener base of this, which is not, you know, going to be one of like the world's biggest things. But given 
the smallness of the business community in general, you just have to decide whether you're interested in people recognizing you potentially or not. I think that's your fundamental question. That's the philosophical question. Then there's all of the marketing and operational questions about do you want to do video and get it up on YouTube, which I think is a no-brainer. I mean, absolutely, we should be having at least snippets of this, if not full episodes, sitting up on YouTube. I don't really know how full – I talk very openly here about the technicalities of how we operate. Like, I don't know how it works – given that we do some editing of this, Mike does some editing, I'm not sure how that works with a full episode on YouTube video, but certainly when we did snippets when Rusland was on, like they were really popular and people loved them. And I think video is the medium of the present and the future. So that part of it's a no-brainer. It's just whether you're prepared to be potentially recognized periodically or not. What do you think about that? Well, it's really interesting just to go before and to that, like some podcasts, obviously Joe Rogan famously does video, Joe Rogan experienced the number one podcast in the world. Uh, the All In podcast uses video a lot. They're a really popular podcast. Other popular podcasts like Scott, G, like Prof G's podcast, uh, and he's one with Cara uh, and Acquired. None of those podcasts use video. So it's really mixed. Some tend to use video and some don't. And there isn't a great correlation in terms of podcast success and video. I've, I've had, definitely had some people ask me for video and they say they, they, only, they only listen to podcasts on video. So there clearly is an audience who, who loves video. Uh, and clearly Liam's one of those people who loves video and maybe it's a generational thing. Uh, and that I know my son's always on YouTube in YouTube shorts is, is, is constantly on. And I, I hate it. I was speaking to another mum just during the week and how she hates it as well. How I, I just, we much rather our kids be watching TV than watching sort of YouTube on there. Mm. And I don't know why I'm so offended by YouTube shorts. I, I'm probably, he doesn't watch TikTok. So maybe I'll be the same with TikTok, but YouTube shorts are addictive. That's why you're offended by them. They are very, very addictive. And seems just minimal educational. It, not, not that TV is educational overly, but I just find it to be very irrelevant to your growth as a person. So YouTube shorts, the problem with YouTube shorts since we raised this is it is there's no natural end point and the algorithm, the content is optimized to be addictive the algorithm is optimized to addict you and there is no logical endpoint. Like, I don't know, in the days when people had cigarettes, smoked cigarettes, I didn't smoke cigarettes, but in the days when people did, there was a logical endpoint of smoking cigarettes, which is when you ran out of cigarettes. And on a TV show, there's a logical endpoint or a, or a Netflix show, it's when the end of the episode happens. But there's no logical endpoint on these shorts on these platforms and and they're optimized to be addictive and to be particularly addictive to you as an individual in the algorithms. That to me is the issue. Like even, so I'm very rarely on social media apart from LinkedIn. And when I'm on. Do you watch TikTok at all? Oh, I do not go into TikTok for many. I've got many problems with TikTok. So no, I do not go into TikTok. But it's kind of like, I know it's sli it's slightly different content too, but I'm even telling you when I go onto YouTube shorts, because I stumble across there sometimes it's easy for me to spend two hours being stuck on there and addicted. And I'm conscious of this and I'm emotionally trying to fight against it, but I, I can't be like, they like you're there playing with my like evolutionary biology. I can't overcome that. And so I think that's the problem with this. So I don't know. You pro is, is the proposal that we was the Ruslan stuff. This is how clueless I am. Was the Ruslan stuff on YouTube shorts. Is that where we put it on YouTube or we didn't put it on YouTube anywhere? Mike. So we haven't yet put them on YouTube, but if we did put them on YouTube, we would probably put them as their horizontal videos. We'd put them as short clips, not shorts, short clips on YouTube, but we do have the option 
to edit them as shorts, which are vertical videos. Those those high quality comments that were vastly superior to anything that we could have thought, Adam, is exactly why we run ads on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. Can you run a, a poll on LinkedIn? I know you, there's a cycle LinkedIn that you may have heard of. Um, why don't you go to LinkedIn and run a poll uh, and ask our listeners, do you want YouTube or not? Um, do you want more? Or do you want more video or not? And do you want it short? Do you want full? Fun? No, I don't agree to that. I tell you why I dis- I disapprove of that suggestion. Okay, okay. You, you'd LinkedIn poll what you have a breakfast. You might I can't think believe you're rejecting a LinkedIn poll. You might think the only reason I'm disapproving this one time ever of a LinkedIn poll is because it's you that suggested it this time. However, let me tell you, <laughs> I'm a figure. I hate kind of <laughs> Let me tell you what I think the issue is. One is. I think that the people that would watch stuff on YouTube may not be a great overlap necessarily with the people on our on our LinkedIn page. I think it will skew younger is my gut feel. My second reason is that I'm not sure you know that you want to watch this on video until you watch it on video. And the third reason is that the people that won't watch podcasts that are not on video are not there to vote on our LinkedIn page because they're not listening to the podcast because it's not on video. They're yep. my three compelling arguments. However... To make you happy, I will still capitulate and put a poll up on the web on LinkedIn. I actually think you've actually put the poll on already as we've had this conversation. It's already on, it's live, people are voting. Uh, you moved that fast. The results are already in, and I can tell you that you and Mike voted for video. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not, I don't think video is actually, I'm not obsessed with, I, I, I'm not, I don't watch TikTok. I watch a bit of, the only, the only sort of short form I watch is incidentally on Instagram because Instagram, Instagram obviously have, have copied TikTok, uh, but I don't love it. I actually find, I find I, I sort of watch a few and get a bit bored. So maybe maybe Insta's algorithm isn't, isn't as good as TikToks or YouTube's yet. Um, and I think it's been quite profitable for them. But uh, Personally, I think that being recognised even very occasionally is not necessarily the greatest experience in the world. But um, but I'm prepared to, you know, take one for the team. But Mike, <laughs> what do you – you can come back on and give us your thought, Mike. What do you think? Video or no video? Well, I think from my experience – making podcasts my personal angle is that there is no downside to having video content now obviously there are operational things that make it difficult there's more setup it's also more expensive to produce videos oh this is a, well, i should have i've sort of seen this price increase coming down <laughs> the pipe when i asked you to comment on it. i do think those are things that you need to consider but i think Having a visual aspect to your content, whether it's full video or just short bits of content, short form bits of content, it allows people to see what you're doing, see these conversations rather than just hearing them. And to me, that's a really powerful marketing tool. And a lot of podcasts now are using video as a growth mechanism. They're good thoughts. Mike, you, you work with a little podcast called Hamish and Andy. I'm not sure if many people have heard of them. Uh, they've got about a million <laughs> listeners. Uh, do those guys use much video? Yeah, so they have a pretty strong digital strategy. They cut up short-form content on their YouTube channel and post the same content across Instagram and short-form content on TikTok. 
and granted it's a different style of content to what you guys are doing. Um, like it's, it's comedy based. I, t- I take offense to the fact that you call comedy based a different style of content. <laughs> actually, you know what? Yeah. Th- this podcast actually is quite funny to be honest. There are uh, very funny bits of this podcast. There you go. That's quite the closest funny. I'm going to get to a fished yeah. out compliment. That's good. I-, I think it's something to, to speak more about in 2024. And, you know, I have some thoughts about, ways that we can do it and what I think video content for this show um, could look like as well. Yeah, that's a good good answer. All right, so that's what we're going to do. But I think if it's in person, it's best. So we'll see if Adam ever comes back to Australia, which I've got I'm starting to get my doubts about, to be honest. I mean, we're still at the moment. I'm, I'm ba- I'm, we leave here tomorrow. It's actually negative 26 today, negative 28 tomorrow. So it's going to be pretty cold up there. So I'm looking forward. We're opening off to Fiji next week. And then we're back. So next week's will be done uh, remotely, and the week after that we'll be back in person. So maybe we'll think about. We'll put. I'll put a poll up. We'll think about doing it for the in person. And I, I like you have. You don't live the worst life. I don't know if you've noticed that, but you live a pretty good life. I just want to point that out in case you haven't fully appreciated. <laughs> we've had a, had a pretty yeah. pretty good trip this one, and we've actually got super lucky. So so much about skiing. I'm not sure if you're discussed this. I'm not sure if you're a skier or not. Do you ski? I used to ski like 10, 15 years ago, but I haven't done it for a long time. I didn't, I didn't love it. I thought so, it was fine. I like ball sports. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the thing with skiing is you've got to have luck. Like you've got to have good snow and it makes, it's just the experience is either really good or really bad. And we've had incredible luck in the last year or so. Everywhere we go, it seems to snow just before we get here. So you sort of want the per- absolute perfect day is it snows a lot the, day, the night before and then the, you wake up and it's blue sky. And that, Almost never happens. Usually something goes wrong. Uh, we had a couple of days like that this week, so it's incredibly lucky. Uh, it's also got very cold now, so that's sort of one of the downsides. But you can sort of survive with cold. But to get great snow, uh, there, like if you go back a week before we got here, there was sort of rain everywhere and could barely skate out of the bottom. So we were super lucky, uh, so incredibly fortunate to, to be in such a beautiful place and have such great conditions. I know lots of skiers. Lots of people that I'm friends with really love skiing. And you're a good – I mean, you're a modest person, so you don't say things like, you go heli skiing, but you're a good skier. I know quite a few of my friends are good skiers. You've all got something in common, but I'm not going to tell you what it is because I want to retain listeners of this podcast. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. No, well, I'm, thing, I just, no, I'm I just really, make the observation up. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm actually really happy. I've, I've, so my, my son's just turned nine, and he's been skiing since he was four. Obviously, lost a couple of years with COVID, but he's now – skiing super well uh he's now basically keeping up with me on sort of black runs and and he's improved a lot so it's been i'm sort of really proud that he's done such an incredible job my daughter's really improving as well yeah that's a much nicer like that's a special experience when you can kind of do fun activities with your kids like yeah i'm totally on board with that it's one of those things that we spent the first couple of years and obviously as kids you they're, they're a lot slower and just learning skiing's like walking so you think people say oh you're good ski most people who are good skiers just have skied more or often started skiing younger uh, it's not as if they're – like usually say you're a talented footballer. Usually it's because you're a more skillful footballer. It's not because you've done it more. Whereas skiing, in many cases, just you do it more, you get you get better. Um, so if it's just to plow through that period with the kids – and I, was, I started skiing a bit later in life, but I was a little bit older. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't start skiing when I was super young. But you can just see it in the kids who start young. And you've seen in European people and Canadians just how good they are. They are better than – so much better than Australians because they just grew up in mountains, whereas most Australians didn't, unless you happen to live in live in, in sort of the Alps or Mount Hotham or Force Creek or something like that. So we've been super lucky. Uh, it's been a, a great trip, uh, and but can't wait to be back in person with some YouTube shorts on the way. 
thanks to all the listeners. We're always super grateful people taking the time to listen. Hopefully we can entertain and inform with some interesting business news. And please don't forget to tell your friends to listen. Uh, we love it when you do. And we love getting, we've got, we actually got about a dozen incredible questions. So we wanted to get to all of them today. We got to one, uh, but we'll definitely get to more. We're going to try and get at least one a week, but please keep sending them through. Uh, we've got some amazing questions banked up and we'll definitely hit them in the next few weeks. Fantastic. Thanks, Adia. Thanks, Mike. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir. If you want to submit a question for the show, please send a voice recording to Adam J. Schwab at Instagram. Today's show was produced by Mike Liberale. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Please give us a rating and don't forget to tell your friends. We'll be back next week for our weekly analysis of all things growth and tech.